tonight. Before we get started, I thought I'd give just a quick update on Brother Birdo for those of you uh, who are curious and would like to know. I was able to visit with his nurse uh, about 4.30 this afternoon, and God's been very good to Birdo. He's been awake today. He's talking. He's eating, and uh, he was able to uh, walk some this afternoon, and so he's doing well, all things considered. Uh, just continue to be in prayer as was mentioned in that uh, text that went out to everyone yesterday. Uh, just continue to be in prayer for his hands. That is the, the biggest issue now, it looks like. And uh, his both on the back sides, both of them, uh, just horrible, horrible burned. And uh, anyway, just who knows? I don't know how long it takes to find out how extensive the damage is. I don't know if it's a day, two days, a week. I don't have any idea. But uh, anyway, that is their biggest point of concern. So just be in prayer that he does not lose any uh, use of the hands. And I know that uh, he would appreciate those prayers. Also, be in prayer for his dad and mom. Uh, in times past, we've been over to the house to visit Birdo and things of that nature. And I want to be careful in how I say this, but you could tell they weren't really impressed that we were over there. Uh, you know, just kind of like, you're here for Birdo, we don't need you, and... You know, just, just kind of a standoffish uh, presence. And yesterday, I was the first one to the hospital. I beat the family there and stuff like that, and that's another story. But anyways, I got to visit with his dad just a little bit, and then whenever I went down to Lubbock, uh, I was the first one there to Amarillo, and then whenever I got down to Lubbock, uh, they had me come into the family room and stay with them, and they wanted me to be with them throughout the evening. And so I say all that to say certainly they warmed up to me, uh, throughout the process, and I would love to see in all of this Berto's family get reached with the gospel, and uh, that would be a wonderful outcome if if that could happen. So be in prayer for uh, Berto's parents, and honestly, I don't even know their names. Uh, in all that yesterday, I never said, now what is your name again? Because it just didn't feel right, but uh, anyway, the Solises, and uh, he's got his little brother Brandon who's been to church several times, many times, and he was on the fishing trip with us a couple of years ago. And then uh, two sisters, uh, Tiffany and, what is it, Michelle? Okay, all right, we'll go with that. Uh, sure, Tiffany and Michelle. So uh, be in prayer for them, and uh, if we could reach them as well. I've been texting with Tiffany, so that's who I'm texting with for other updates. But uh, anyway, just pray for that, and I appreciate, and I know he does as well, the prayers already. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good, as it's already been said, to be in your house tonight. And Lord, we're thankful for the music that we've enjoyed. It's good to be reminded uh, that if we want to be happy in you, then we have to trust and obey. And, Lord, that's difficult sometimes. It's not always what our flesh wants to do. But, Lord, it is true that uh, that's the only way to know joy in our lives. And so I pray that you'd help us tonight uh, to trust you and to be obedient. And, God, that you'd help us to follow you in the way that we ought. Lord, I pray that you'd help me this evening uh, to communicate what you've laid upon my heart and that uh, you'd help us to just do some soul-searching tonight and some consideration and Lord, if anything uh, needs to take place in our personal lives, that you would help us to do that. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
Tonight I want to begin with a story that I know I have to have shared at some point in the past. It's just one of those stories that I know, uh, I know I've shared it. So I'm going to, you about done, Brother Mike? <laughs> I'm going to present this story as though it's the first time, and maybe for you it'll seem like the first time, uh, even though it's not the first time. And uh, going to approach a thought from it from a different angle. But most of you know that between my internship at uh, Tulsa and moving here a little over 15 years ago, I spent four months selling cars. And you learn a lot and you see a lot when you're in that kind of a prof profession, at least I did anyways. I, I saw a lot that I'd never seen before. But one of the worst car deals that I have ever witnessed took place in that four months that I was there. A young man came in and he wanted to buy the Camaro SS off the showroom floor. It was a pretty car, I guess, but uh, it was on the showroom floor and, and that is what he decided he wanted. The problem was, was with the trade-in that he had, he was upside down, which means he owed more than what it was worth. And so in order to be able to make the deal work, he was going to have to put down a certain amount of money. He had the money available to him, so he was willing to put down the money. I believe it was just under $1,000, and that was going to help him get into this deal. But then, past that, I don't know why these numbers stick with me, other than the fact it just made an impact on my brain, and I could not believe that someone was doing that, especially 15 years ago. But he signed up for seven years' worth of payments at over $700 a month. Now keep in mind, almost 16 years ago, how much money was worth then, it was over $700 a month for seven years after he had put money down to get the deal done. So all total, it was going to be a $60,000 plus car for a car that would not be worth anything if he ever finally got it paid off. Now, as I've thought about that story on different occasions throughout these years, and I've thought about how crazy and absurd and ridiculous such a car purchase would be, especially for that kind of a car that many years ago, I asked myself recently this question. How did that happen? How does a young man make a deal like that? How does a young man like him make a purchase like that? And without question, without doubt, there are many different factors that play into it. Certainly, there was an element of ignorance. You have to be dumb to do that. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know how else to express it. There is a lack of common sense in making a purchase like that. There had to have been a little bit of ego and pride involved to be able to say you were buying this, to be able to say you could afford it. There had to be a little bit of that involved. But as I thought about it, here is what I also determined, that on that day, he met a genuine, bona fide, authentic salesman. The kind that give all car salesmen a bad name. I was not the salesman. I was just the one watching. I was just the one observing. I was just the one taking it in. But the one who closed the deal and the one who made it happen was my manager by the name of Tommy. He came in and Tommy was smooth. And Tommy was just 
cool under pressure. And Tommy knew how to appeal to, to the looks and the ride and, the, and all that the car would give him by way of status. And, and he knew how to apply some pressure here. And, and he knew how to get it to where this young man was not going to walk away from the deal. I really think that if the young man had not met the salesman that he did, he would have never made the deal that he made. And as you think about my manager at the time, here is what I would say, even though I liked him as an individual, I would say something like this. To talk somebody into that with that kind of pressure, with that kind of a sales pitch, there's not much integrity in that. The only thing that my manager was worried about was closing the deal, moving another unit, putting a name up on the board representing a sale. The only thing that he was worried about was, was making money for the company and, of course, making money for himself in the long run. Not much integrity, but he was good at what he did. He was convincing with his conversation, and he was able to close deals that probably didn't need to be made. Now, we'll get back to that principle in a couple of moments, but look in verse number 5 tonight of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse number 5, Paul said this, That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I want us to think about this this evening, and I'm sure you'll understand this. It's not like I'm going to, to show you something new right now. But he's speaking of faith, and as he speaks of faith in verse number 5, here's what we can understand if we consider the whole context of things, and that is this, that Paul is speaking of saving faith. You understand as well as I do that there are different aspects of faith. There are different aspects of trust. And so this evening, for those of us who are saved, we don't have to continually live with saving faith because once we are saved, we are saved. So it's not like I've got to maintain my salvation by maintaining faith. You understand that, right? You're not saved today because you have enough faith to keep you saved. Okay, we have to exercise other aspects of faith in our Christian life, trust, dependence, confidence in God. But I don't have to do that. Once I have placed my faith in Him for salvation, then it is a done deal. It is a sealed deal. It's completed. It is finished. But Paul here is writing about saving faith. And here's what he says as it relates to their saving faith. He said that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Now, we've talked about this repeatedly over the last several weeks, that whenever Paul references the wisdom of men and the wisdom of their day and the wisdom of their culture, what he was talking about was their philosophy and their intellect and, and their knowledge and their understanding. And so what Paul is saying in verse number 5 was this, is your faith does not need to stand in the wisdom or the philosophy or the intellect of men. You don't want to place your faith in your thinking, in philosophy, again, in, in intellect. He said, this is not 
where you want your faith to stand. What does it mean for something to stand? It means this, for something to be grounded or for something to be based upon. So he says, you don't want your faith to be grounded, rested, standing, or based upon an intellectual idea or an intellectual approach to faith. What you want is your faith, he says in verse number 5, to stand or to rest or to be based on the power of God. What you want, believers, in Corinth is this, is to know for sure that you are saved, not because of an intellectual approach, not because of a philosophical approach, not because of some theological understanding, but you want to know your salvation is so based upon the witnessing or the, uh, uh, the awareness of the power of God in your life. So that's what he says in verse number 5. Now I want to go back to verse number 1 and help set the stage for why he said what he did in verse number 5. Notice in verse number 1 he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. We know very well by now because of chapter 1 and how Paul labored this point he says again in verse number 2 that whenever he came unto them, he did not do so with wisdom. The Apostle Paul has been clear over and over again that he did not come with philosophy. He did not come with intelligence. He did not come with a scholarly approach. He says, whenever I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech. You and I need to remember this as we go throughout the message tonight and really any time we read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, we need to understand this, that in and of himself, Paul was a very gifted individual. He, he was one who was gifted seemingly from what he says, not only in his thoughts, but in the way that he could express himself. Let's be honest, sometimes people are good thinkers, but when they try to express themselves, uh, not so good. Right? Okay, the Apostle Paul was not one of those men. The Apostle Paul was one who, as he spoke deeply, or as he thought deeply, and as he thought eloquently, he was the kind who could articulate it well and he could speak it well. But he says, I want to remind you one more time that whenever I came to you, I did not do so with excellency of speech. It wasn't with, with great oratory skill that I came to you. And he says, I did not come with wisdom. He said, all I did was declare unto you the testimony of God, or I came to you declaring the testimony of the works of God. That is, all I did was come to you and share with you who God is, what God is about, what God offers. Notice in verse number 2 he said, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does that mean? It means this, that as I came to you, I determined I'm not going to spend my time trying to figure you out. 
Remember that Corinth was a wealthy city. Corinth was a successful city. Corinth would have been a bustling city in their day. There would have been much activity. There would have been much development in the city of Corinth. And so what Paul said is this, is I determined not to know anything among you. I I was not worried about getting my thumb on the pulse of the city of Corinth and knowing what's going on and knowing what's happening and where the hot spots are, where the deep thinkers are. He said, that's not what I wanted to do. He said, the only thing that I wanted to do was save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The only thing that I was worried about bringing to you was Jesus Christ and the message of His crucifixion. Does this make sense? It goes back to what we said a couple of weeks ago. The Apostle Paul was not worried about bringing a sermon or bringing a message that would have been palatable to a bunch of unsaved, unregenerate, ungodly people. He said, the only thing that I was worried about was bringing to you Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Then he says in verse number 3, And I was with you in weakness... And in fear and in much trembling. Paul says that as he was with them there in Corinth, he did so in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, I don't know about you, but if you just read that casually, here's what it could sound like that the Apostle Paul was saying this Whenever I was in Corinth, I was scared to death. When I was in Corinth, I was weak. Whenever I was in Corinth, I I trembled. Whenever I was in Corinth, I I, I was uncertain of myself. I didn't quite know what I was doing. But as one author pointed out that I read today, he he said this, that, that it's not the nature of the Apostle Paul to be scared and to be weak and, and to be trembling. But what these words seem to indicate is this, is because of the ungodly nature of the city of Corinth, it's almost as though there was an uncertainty as to how the gospel would be responded to. Are the people going to respond? Are they going to listen? Are they going to take heed to what is being said? As the Apostle Paul came in and simply preached the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as he didn't try to be intellectual with them, as he didn't try to be scholarly with them, it's as though the Apostle Paul questioned what kind of an impact is the gospel going to have here Because here's what we know, even in the Scripture, that the gospel was not always received in every city. There were times and there were occasions where even according to the commandment of Christ, you would go into the city, you would preach the message that you were supposed to preach, and if you were not received, you left the city, you shook the dust off the shoes, and and you went to the next place. Not every place is warm and friendly and receptive to the message of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul seems to be indicating some kind of uncertainty. What kind of response is there going to be to the Scripture? But notice what he says in verse number 4. Again, as we continue our thoughts, he says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, in verse 4, he mentions his speech or his, his conversing or his declaration and his preaching. And he says again in verse number 4 that it was not of man's wisdom, but it was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Well, what's Paul saying? He's saying what we think he's saying. He is saying that as he preached there in the city of Corinth, What the preaching and the speaking 
manifested or made known was the Spirit of God and the power of God. Does this make sense? His preaching and what he spoke, it demonstrated or it made known or revealed the Spirit of God and the power of God, that which their faith was supposed to stand in or to rest on or to be based upon. I want your faith, the Apostle Paul says, to not be resting upon or standing upon or based upon intellectualism and philosophy and and things of that nature. No, what you need to have your faith standing upon is the power of God which I preached to you and demonstrated to you when I ministered there in the city of Corinth. But notice what else he said in verse number 4. He said, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. What does it mean for words to be enticing? It means for them to be persuasive. It means for them to be persuasive and convincing. Now, if you think about this, here's what the Apostle Paul seems to indicate. I could have come to you, and I could have preached to you enticing Persuasive, convincing words. I could have come to you with my excellency of speech, with my oratory skills, with my apologetics and my ability to express myself. I could have come to you in a very convincing manner. And I could have persuaded you to make decisions. But the Apostle Paul was obviously wise enough to know that if a person made a decision simply based upon his excellency of speech and his enticing, persuasive, convincing words, then their faith was now resting upon and based upon something other than the power of God in their lives. It's as though the Apostle Paul understood this, that as he went to the city of Corinth, he could have hustled, so to speak. He could have worked it, so to speak, and he could have, in a sense, sold the gospel to people because he had the ability within himself, again, because of his giftedness, he had the ability to use enticing words that would have naturally drawn men and women to the message he was preaching. But again, the Apostle Paul understood that if the only reason a person has quote-unquote come to Christ or made a decision for Christ was because they heard a slick presentation, then everything about their faith 
was based upon the wrong thing. Everything about their faith was now resting upon a mental awareness, but not a spiritual change through the power of God in their lives. You understand the integrity of the Apostle Paul here? The Apostle Paul could have gone in and racked up the numbers. I closed this deal, and I closed this deal, and I closed this deal, and I, I got this person to pray a prayer, and I got this person to pray a prayer, and I got this person to, to make a decision, and I got a person over here, and I got this family, and I got this family, and I got this family. But see, the Apostle Paul had some integrity about his ministry. No surprise to us, but it's good for us to see it, and it's good for us to be reminded of it, that the Apostle Paul had enough integrity about himself as it related to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ that though he could have sold people some religious goods, he was more worried about demonstrating to them the Spirit of God and the power of God. He was more worried about them knowing the power of God than for them to simply know about God. Now this evening, if you think about it, it's fairly simple as to why a thought like this ought to be considered at least for a couple of moments. You understand this, right? Sure we do. But I'm going to act like we don't. I'm going to tell us why we need to consider it. How about that? All right. Here's why we need to consider such a principle and, and such a thought. Because over the last however many years you want to consider, I'll say the last 35 years because that's whenever I could have started paying attention a little bit to what is happening around me. But for sure in the last 30 years, you know what I'd be willing to speculate? I'd be willing to speculate that in the last 30 years... Millions of decisions for Christ have been made. Millions of decisions for Christ have been made. You know this because I've certainly not shied away from it. It's just common knowledge. Growing up, Southern Baptist, uh, they're kind of big on decisions. They kind of like the idea of decisions made for Christ. Whenever I transitioned into independent fundamental Baptist uh, 23 years ago, uh, I discovered something that uh, independent Baptists aren't a lot different than many Southern Baptists. And what independent Baptists like are decisions for Christ. Now, you understand this. I mean, good grief. It's a Wednesday night. You're the faithful ones, and, and you know this, hopefully, without me having to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. What church and what Christian and what preacher doesn't want someone to make a decision for Christ? I mean, we want that to happen. I mentioned that just a moment ago. We would love to reach the family because of the events of this week. I would love to see more people make decisions for the cause of Christ. But I want us to think about this for a moment, that if a decision for Christ has been truly made, then what are they then resting or basing their faith upon? What is it that has, has truly been the foundation of their faith? 
If a person has truly made a decision for Christ, then their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. If this person, whoever this person is, or if this family, whoever the family may be, if they have truly made a decision for Christ, then the entire basis for that decision should be without doubt the power of God affecting their lives and the power of God changing their lives. That's fairly simple, you would think. But herein lies the problem. We all want to see decisions for Christ. We all want to see conversions. We all want to see the numbers. And whenever I say we all, I just mean within our ranks collectively, here's what we want to see. We want to see the numbers and we want to see the results. And the missionaries want to see the numbers and see the baptisms. They want to see all these different things. But you know what the problem is for so many people in the ministry? And for so many people in churches? There is a lack of ministerial integrity. And all I mean by that is this. Certainly within the ranks of preachers, but also within the ranks of the, for lack of better words, devoted and committed members of local churches, many times what we fail in is true integrity to the message we suppose to present to those in need of the message. Simply put, here's what happens so many times in our own ranks. We get decisions based on the fact that we're good salesmen and we can get people to respond to what it is we're offering in an effort to close the deal. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. Go to youth. Uh, go go to a youth conference. Go to uh, a, a youth camp, and watch what happens. In, in so many occasions, on so many occasions, you see something like this: somebody who is an excellent storyteller but they're not much on Bible substance. They're excellent at telling stories about this person and this person and this person and this person, and somewhere in the midst of the message, so-called, they try to sprinkle a verse here or sprinkle in a verse here or, or touch on something here, but, but if you go to enough youth events, you know what you'll find so many times? 
a preacher who is good at appealing to kids to make decisions for Christ that could very well be void of the power of God transforming their lives. And so there's a sense of excitement that X number of kids or teenagers were saved, X number of kids made decisions. But if their faith is not based upon and standing upon and, and, and resting upon the power of God, then they have placed their faith in the wrong thing. Now, I don't want us to sit here and be uncomfortable tonight, but I do want us to sit here and be honest and admit, among the ranks of Baptists, it happens. It happens with adults, you know. Come to me or come with me to, to this event, you know. The, the church is hosting this event or, or there's going to be this taking place. And, and so people come and they listen and what do they hear? One story after another story after another story after another story after another story. And what is it? It's a giant sales pitch. And at the end, do you want to come to Jesus? Do you want Jesus to come into your heart? Do you want Jesus to save you? <coughs> well, my goodness, after all those stories, who wouldn't want to be saved? The only problem is, is so many times, and it's evidenced by the fact that there's not much of a changed life after the special event, the problem is, is so many people have placed their faith in an intellectual aspect of who God is, but not in knowing the power of the Spirit and the power of God in their life. I don't know if you've ever done this personally. But you realized you had one on the hook, so to speak. You know, you're talking to this individual and, and you realize, hey, I think I've got them baited and I think I've got them hooked and I, and I think they're close to making a decision. And what do we do? We keep working it and working it and working it until we did what? until we close the deal. We got them to pray the prayer. We got them to ask Jesus to come into their heart and to forgive them of their sins, which is a whole other subject for discussion. But have you ever, maybe, been guilty of such? Well, I have. I know this person needs to be saved and they're willing to talk to me about it. And I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to reason and I'm going to reason and I'm going to reason. And I understand there's a place for conversating or conversing with them and making conversation and, and you know, leading a person to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. But let's be honest, sometimes even in our own personal approach to witnessing, we can be more of a salesman than we are a representative trying to demonstrate the power of who God is. Whether it be as a church, whether it be with us individually, you know what we need in dealing with the lost? We need some spiritual integrity. 
Just because we can manipulate someone, just because we can entice them, just because we can persuade them, just because we can convince them, just because we can get them to say a prayer, does not mean anything has happened. We want to see our kids saved. Well, I can get my kids saved all the time when they're little. Just say this, don't you want to go to heaven, honey, when you die? Don't you want to be in heaven with mommy and daddy? I mean, don't you want to be there with grandma and grandpa? Well, what five-year-old doesn't want to be in heaven? You've got to have some integrity with the kids and the grandkids, whatever it may be. You've got to let, and I've got to remember, that, that we've got to let the Spirit of God do the work because if that person has never experienced the power of the Spirit and the power of God in their lives, then all they have is an intellectual understanding of who God is, but they don't have a transformed life because of who God is. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he just makes it very clear. I could have come to you in excellency of speech, but I didn't do it. I could have come to you with wisdom, but I didn't do it. I could have come to you with enticing words, and I could have sold you a religious product, but I didn't do that. Because I want your faith to stand and I want it to be based upon the power of God and not anything I did. And that should be our desire in any approach we have in dealing with the lost. But that being said, and how I wish the church were full tonight, but that being said, you know that it wouldn't be a bad idea if we paused for just a moment, maybe at some point this evening, and asked ourselves this question. What's the basis of my testimony? What's the basis of my testimony? I mean, I grew up in a high-pressure, high-sales Southern Baptist church. I grew up in a church that promoted decision, 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 starlight crusade, two weeks every year in the summer. And what did you want? You wanted all these decisions? Okay, as all that was happening, I've got to ask myself, okay, what was the motivation for my decision? Was it a good sales pitch or was it the convicting power of God in my life? When did I understand, okay, this, this thing called salvation, this is a personal thing, and it's the, the thing that I need because of my sin. Listen, if you grew up in church, if you grew up with all the terminology around you, if you grew up with an understanding of this, or if you grew up you know, with some kind of an association with it, we really, and I, I hate to stress this on a Wednesday night because it seems out of place maybe, but we've really got to consider... Did someone just close the deal with me? Or do I know what it's like to experience the power of God in my life? An intellectual understanding of who God is and salvation and eternity and heaven and hell, whatever you want to consider there, an intellectual understanding is not enough. Our faith needs to stand and rest upon and be based upon the power of God.
Consider your own testimony of salvation. What is it resting on? We need to have integrity, no doubt, as we deal with the lost. But what is our testimony of salvation resting upon? Something to consider. Let's all stand this evening and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, there is a need for all of us to make sure that when we handle those who are lost, when we visit with them, when we speak to them, God, there is such a need that all we do is demonstrate you. There is such a need that we have integrity in how we approach those who are lost. God, I think it would alarm us to know the number of people who have been led astray because there was such a push and there was such a desire for numbers that we sacrificed integrity to get those numbers. God, I pray that you'd help us tonight to also give consideration to this thought. What led us to our testimony? Was it someone who was slick in their presentation? Was it an appeal to our emotions? Was it fear? What was the basis? Lord, we all need to know the power of you working in our lives. We need to know that day that you spoke to our heart and that you, you changed us and that you did something miraculous in our lives that only you can do. So I pray that you'd speak to us however uh, you would see fit and that we'd respond accordingly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.